your Bibles to uh, please Acts, um, Acts 16, I think. We read, what we, we, we read what we read from the Confession of Faith, which is our secondary standard. It's how, sadly, in, until Christ comes back, the church is somewhat hyphenated. I like denominations in one sense that they allow us to be honest with what we believe the scripture teaches. Then there's another sense which I am kind of sad when we become sectarian and we don't think other brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the sad part. But one of the things that part of the distinction, the hyphen part, is we are essentially the great-grandchildren of Puritans. And when we talk about this business of saving faith, we'll see it with Lydia, which is why we read what we read there. Uh, It's a gift of God. God the Holy Spirit gives faith, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. Not just our, we say our confession is a summary of what the scripture teaches. So if you know the Bible, Acts 13, 48, the elect believe. Acts, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, it's a gift of, uh, believing is a gift of God. Okay, all right, what did I say? Acts 16... If you've been, if you come regularly, you see I'm having fits. I pick a passage, and I think I'm gonna, man, boy, howdy, I'm gonna get through this passage, and I can only make half a verse. So um, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe when my grandchildren go to college, I'll get through here. All right. Um, I think what I'd like to do is let's look at verse 11, and we'll read to verse 15. Though specifically, the sermon passage will be 13 through 15. I'm just going to unpack it, kind of like a like an onion. Acts 16, verse um, 11. This is the perfect word of our perfect God. Putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, and we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I I think we'll end right there. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word. We pray that it would um, bring you glory, almighty God, that you would build us up, Jesus Christ, those of us who are in, in you even right now, Christ, you would conform us into your holy, blessed image. And as always, that the, the good news, the evangel would go out and do the work for which you've accomplished it, to seek and to save the lost, to build up the family and the household of God, even as you did through this woman and her household and even through us and through our households. Glorify your name. Extend your kingdom. Use us, O God. We thank you for your kindness. Amen. All right. Since I'm a series preacher, which is just uh, another way to say I, I pick a book, in this case Acts, and we start at chapter 1, verse 1, and we plow through the book. I think that's the best way myself to preach through the Bible. It's the way the Holy Spirit inspired it. And that way there, I can't dodge certain passages. If you've ever sat under preaching and the pastor is either a topical preacher, which he means he just jumps around, 
and you think, why didn't you hit that passage? Or why do you always hang out at this passage? All pastors, because we're flesh and blood, can have hobby horses. And so we pick the thing we like, and we incessantly yammer on about that thing. And then there are passages in the Bible we don't like, and so we skip over that, and hopefully you don't see us skipping over. So a method that I'm using helps me and helps you get around my flesh. I can't hang out on my hobby horse, and we just plow through whatever the Holy Spirit has for us, even if it makes me uncomfortable or if there are perplexing things, we just have to plow through it. That's the game plan. And in the context of what we're looking at, there's a logical there's a logical order to this whole well there's a logical order to the whole bible because god is a god of logic we get the word logic from jesus there's one writer that calls jesus the logic of god logos which is word this is a john 1 1 in the beginning was the word christ and he calls him the logic of god so the christian religion is a very logical reasonable religion because it's a religion of the of god and so there's a connection between what we're looking at and what has come prior. Prior, the context of our 13 through 15, is the proclamation of the gospel. And then logically, we have the reception of the gospel with Lydia, this woman. And then if the Lord gives us another couple of weeks together, we're going to look at the rejection of the gospel by two classes of people. One, the slave girl, and then the masters of the slave girl. So the proclamation of the gospel... And then one response to the gospel is yes, that's here with Lydia, and the other response is no, and the no is variously considered, uh, and we'll look at that. So that's what we're looking at. I do want to mention a little bit uh, of um, the context of the proclamation of the gospel, preaching of the gospel, sharing of the gospel, whatever word that you want to use. Paul's been busy preaching and teaching. We said last week, and we see it here, We're in uh, the region of Macedonia. It's part of the Roman Empire. Philippi is a city, a leading city. Thessalonica is near Philippi. It's also in in Macedonia. Macedonia is Europe. Christ said before he ascended to heaven, go take my gospel to the nations, to the whole world, teaching them to observe everything that I taught you, baptizing them, making disciples, mathetes is disciples in Greek, learners of Jesus. We're Christians, Acts 17, uh, 11, excuse me, where they first were called Christians. We are Christians. We love Christ, we live for Christ, we serve Christ, and we're going to go be with Christ. And so that proclamation of Christ's gospel is for the whole world. Now, if you think, well, Pastor, did you just lose your Calvinist scorecard? I, I really didn't. I understand limited atonement. That's not my purpose right now or a particular redemption. But the gospel is to be proclaimed, the fancy word is ubiquitously, everywhere. So it's for the whole world. And so when you come here to Europe, these are a bunch of Gentile people that are accepting or receiving Jesus. We learn that the Bible teaches that the gospel is for the Jew, the gospel is for the Greek, the gospel is for the Roman, the gospel is for the Gentile, the gospel is for white, black, rich, poor, male, female, everyone. Christ says in Matthew 24, take my gospel to the whole world. There's no kind of, um, we're not to see any earthly distinction as a hindrance to proclaiming the gospel. Sometimes we do that. Oh, and I see it happen in the church. We just don't do that. See, we're kind of a traditional, whatever we kind of are, whatever we are. And sometimes our people go, well, I have some friends, but I don't think they would, I don't think they would like us. We give it away. Christ is meant to be given away to the whole world. 
So for every, Christ has died and Christ has risen, four people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, the whole world. And so that's the proclamation. And then for our job as Christ's servants, and I understand not everyone's a minister, but everyone's a minister little m, or everyone's a a servant little s, whether or not you're an office bearer. And as Christ's servants, we are busy as ambassadors for Jesus, giving Christ away. That's the context of what's going on. Apostle Paul is the big M minister, the big S servant. There's a a saying, which I kind of like, a common saying. I don't often look at like non-Christian maxims. Maxims are fancy sayings, pithy sayings. I tend to look at Christian Puritans is basically what I I live in the 1600s. Mea culpa. But there are some pretty insightful non-Christian maxims, and one is thrive where you're planted. And so for us, I suppose this is true for all of us, we always want to be somewhere where we're not, or we want to be something that we're not. We, I don't want to, I'm from here, but I want to be there. I have this gift, but I want that gift. And that thrive where you're planted says, don't do that. Wherever you're at, you be the best that you can be, you serve the best that you can be right there. Well, let me apply that to the Christian life. Let's stop pining as Christians. I wish I was here. I w- people do this. I can't wait till the kids get to 18. I always waited till, I can't wait till my kids get 18. I don't know what I thought was going to happen. I thought I was just going to hang out with my wife like my college girlfriend. And I was just going to be living large. And when they get to be 18, I'm not going to be worried about them and I'm going to be living large. And then what happens? You're stressed out of your gourd when they're 18. And then when they're 36, you're stressed out of your gourd because they're going to the doctors. So don't pine for these other things. As Christ's servants, we think he's sovereign, we know he's sovereign, wherever he has planted you, wherever God has put you, geographically, whatever corner of his world he's placed you, with, with whatever gifts he's given you, use them for Christ. Thrive for Christ where you're at. Are you sick? Then use your sickness to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was the Irish missionary? I don't know, I forget her name. It'll come to me at 2 o'clock in the morning. She got sick. She spent the last 11 years, uh, Amy Carmichael, in bed. And so she said, well, I'm going to use this time to be a pr- to, for my prayer ministry. So sickness, use it for Christ. Health, use it for Christ. Life, use it for Christ. Death, use it for Christ. Wealth, poverty, everything is for Christ. And, and that's what we see. And part of the privilege that we have as Christian people, which is what we're seeing in this context, as Christian, and I, I don't mean in an obnoxious sense, sometimes we can share Jesus or tell other people the gospel, like Paul told Lydia, in maybe an ugly way. I don't. I, I know some Christians do that, but I, I don't. I, I don't believe the unbeliever when they're always like, "You all Christians are so mean, and you share Jesus in this mean, pugnacious way." I, I actually don't believe that we do it like that. The unbeliever is not a very good judge of truth. They're very biased. I think most Christians genuinely love God and love people. Yes, we have the, the flesh. And so we share Jesus with other people because we genuinely care about them, even if they say we don't. But think of it this way. You have the words of eternal life. You can tell people about Christ and that Christ forgives sinners and he reconciles us back to God, which is all of us. And that's kind of what's going on here. And the Apostle Paul and all the co-laborers, they're traveling around everywhere telling people Christ saves sinners. And then Christ will sanctify sinners, and then he'll take us home 
to be with him in heaven. That, that, that's the context. So let's look at this one particular person, Lydia, uh, of Thyatira, which Thyatira is about maybe 240 miles. So, okay, so we have, uh, where are we? Philippi in Macedonia over here, and then maybe two, 240 miles southeast uh, is Thyatira. That's where she's from, but she's come over to Philippi city probably for business, and she's going to hear the gospel. In the immediate section, this is part of the orderliness of God. God's going to juxtapose, contrast, compare two women. One woman hears the gospel. Jesus has presented to her in the gospel, and she says, yes, she believes. That's the businesswoman. And then the other woman is the slave girl. In the Bible, we'll say she has a python spirit. It actually uses the word python in Greek, a python spirit. And she rejects the gospel, albeit in a disguised manner. That's next week's sermon, if the Lord gives me a next week. And so what you have is kind of both ends of the economic social spectrum are being represented. A rich woman, she believes, this poor girl who is a slave, she's held fast by the devil. And we'll see that Jesus is in the business of saving rich and poor and breaking the power of the devil, but that's the context. Now, again, in a macro kind of a view, Lydia, God will open her heart to, re- to receive, to believe what Paul is teaching her about Christ. I want to mention this on the proclamation of the gospel to her, which is what she's believing, to the salvation of her soul. If you were not raised in a Bible-believing church, I wasn't raised in a Bible-believing church. I was raised in a sacerdotal church, which means priestly, sacramentalists. So the sacraments were primary. The word, the word, was, the word was way secondary. Uh, it was the sacraments were the main thing, which is why you have an altar in the church of my youth in the middle rather than a pulpit, but that's a, another study or sermon. <clears throat> in the proclamation of the gospel, gospel is a word that means good news. Evangel is the Greek. In the proclamation of the good news, Jesus is the evangel. So when people are go, going out gospeling, giving the good news, they're presenting Jesus. And I want us to think this way. Because this is what Lydia is receiving. This is what we are receiving, if, if the preaching is biblical. In the proclamation of the gospel, it's the presentation of Jesus to the recipients. It's, it's, the gospel is about the person and the work of Jesus. The gospel isn't that boys wear short hair, hair and have a suit. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not even the law. The, the gospel is the gospel and the law is the law. In the presentation of the gospel, it's about the person of Christ in the work of Jesus Christ, but it's the offering of Jesus. So when you say, well, isn't the gospel the message of Jesus? Yes. So the gospel obviously has to be in context, words, propositions. I've said this a bunch, and I don't mean to pick on anybody. People say, You're gonna li- we have to live the gospel. You can't live the gospel. You can live worthy of the gospel, but you can't live the gospel. That's not true. I understand saying, well, who is the guy? I don't don't know. It'll come to me later. You can't live the gospel. The gospel is about Christ. And again, you can live worthy of the gospel or worthy of the calling, but the gospel itself comes in the content of propositions, of words. But, here's the kicker. This is where people accuse the Protestant. We all love the Bible. Yeah, I totally love the Bible. And why do I love the Bible? Am I an I idolater of the Bible? No, because the Bible is the word of God. It brings, with the proclamation of Jesus, 
I don't know how this works, but I know this is true. You are presenting Jesus or offering to Jesus to the hearer, the recipient, but it's really him in a mystical or a spiritual way. And I'm not a charismatic, though I love charismatics. So Jesus Christ himself is offered through the foolishness of preaching and we come into a vital relationship with Jesus. So it's not just that Christians believe right things about God. We do. But we have been united to Jesus. Spiritually united to Jesus. Mystically joined to Jesus Christ. This is why people think, well, you Christians believe. Yeah, you know, I do. We do whatever the, the Bible says. We, we labor to believe. But we're in a relationship. We're united to him spiritually and mystically. And then we have fellowship with him. So Christ is being presented. And so the two responses are, I receive Jesus or I reject Jesus. So it's Jesus that's being presented, which Lydia will um, receive. Now, another thing that we see in this text, even in a macro sense, not only is the gospel about the person and the work of Jesus as Savior, inherent in the gospel God treats human beings as responsible or religious creatures, even after the fall of Adam. I don't want to have the free will discussion. We think free agency, free will, that's another day. That's another day. I think men are dead in their sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And Necros is dead, corpse, they're dead. It, free agency, but another day. God treats all human beings as responsible. So what I mean by that is this. In the preaching of the gospel, Jesus is being presented to you. Lydia has a choice, as it were. The slave girl and the masters have a choice, as it were. But actually, they have a command. The gospel implies that God holds every human being that hears the proclamation of Jesus responsible to respond. And what's the response that God holds us um, obligated to respond? Repent of your sins and believe in Christ. Own yourself as a sinner worthy of what Christ took, and then come to Christ in belief by believing in him. Someone said to me the other day, well, you're free to worship any God that you want, but you should worship the God of the Bible, the true and the living God. I want you to think of that. Is that true? Are you free to worship any God that you want, but you, it's better if you worship the true and the living God. Are you free? I'll say yes and no. Civilly, yes, you could worship a stick and they're never going to throw you in jail. But religiously, no. This is what people don't think. The commandments of God are commands of God. They're, 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 we are obligated. God puts it in the command form. You, Acts chapter 17. You all must repent. Jesus even puts the gospel in command form in Matthew chapter 11. The Greek is duete. That's command which is, come unto me. It's not, if you want to go to Sai Baba, you want to go to Buddha, you want to go to whoever, you do whatever you want to do. It's no problem. No, 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 you're required. And so here, the command of God goes out, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission. Now, I will say this. In the proclamation of the gospel, even with it being put in the command form, you are responsible, I am responsible. We're all going to die. I, and everybody knows this intellectually, but we push it away. 
We had my wife's family, which is my family, come over to the house yesterday. They're not Christians. And we were getting ready for a late breakfast, which is in her culture, which means 12 o'clock. Hint, a week, wink, wink. And some folks came walking up my front um, steps, and they had a face on. And I already knew what the face, no one comes to see the pastor to tell them they love God and, and everything's great. They're coming to tell me something bad. And as I was looking out, I thought someone died. And that's exactly right. My neighbor died, and the daughter came to tell me her dad died. But her dad's in glory. Her dad was a wonderful believer. And so when we think of this business, oh, responsible to hear Jesus. Oh, no. Whether you believe me or not, you're going to stand before Christ. And if you're in this room right now, he's going to say to you, why didn't you believe my guy? He told you what I told him to tell you. Repent of your sins and believe in Christ. So it's to be proclaimed ubiquitously, freely, fully. We're responsible to come. I like the term offer. It's very, our brother George used the term winsome. I love that term. It's very gentle. Jesus is gentle. So the presentation of the gospel isn't like, uh, at least in my understanding, Come to Jesus and be saved, you damnable sinner. Um, Christ was gentle, and he did warn us of hell. And our, even our secondary standards talk about the, the presentation of Christ being an offer of coming to Christ. I want to say this before we get into Lydia. In this preaching of the gospel, which is what Lydia receives, for pre- preaching, and this is going to seem silly to you, for preaching to be Christian, Christian preaching, Christian teaching, there has to be the presentation of Jesus Christ to it. And you're going to think, well, did we send you to seminary for that? Yes, thank you very much. And, um, but, you, but, but it's not so silly as that. There's a lot that goes on under the so-called guise of Christianity where there's no mention of Jesus. None. It will just be morals. And it's what I would call Christless morals. Um, you should not drink to excess. That's true. You should not... Cat around on your wife, that also is true. Drinking to excess is the sixth commandment. Catting around, no, uh, catting around on your wife is the second commandment. All of those things are true. But if you separate it from Christ, it's not acceptable to God. Only what's done in Christ, for Christ, from, from Christ, is acceptable to God the Father. Uh, b- beloved, um, the presentation of Christian gospel, even the way that we practice the law, everything is for Christ's sake. There has to be a presentation of Jesus Christ. There's a guy running for office right now. Um, He's a Hindu. Very sharp. I watched an extensive interview with him. Super duper duper smart. Undergraduate school, Harvard, law degree, Yale. Just a wonderful Horatio Alger story. I loved everything about this guy. Except he said this, we're, we're, we're one nation under God, faith and family, and the Christians in the audience are going, Amen. But he's a Hindu. It's not for Christ. It's not from Christ. It's not to Christ. Beloved, saying God gets you to, the, to being a theist. Saying God gets you to the equivalent of the theology of the devil. There are lots of things that are presented 
that have nothing to do with Jesus. It's not for Christ's sake. I'll get off that. I'm not picking on that fellow. I pray that he would be converted to Jesus. But beloved, we need to be careful, especially if we're conservative Christians, we don't switch conservatism, which is Christless, for that which is Christful. Now, we, we come to Lydia. What, we, what we're going to see with Lydia is that she's converted to Jesus. She receives Jesus in the proclamation of the gospel. And God the Holy Spirit records a lot of things about this whole event. It happens on a certain day. It happens to a certain person. She's a woman. She's a Gentile. She's a businesswoman. She's rich. All of these things are recorded. So when we're thinking, well, when does this occur? Well, let's look at when it occurs. The Bible tells us that this woman comes to know Jesus savingly on the Sabbath day. Paul and his co-laborers, they go outside the city gates, we've seen this before, and they go down to the river, they're looking for a place to worship. Man-made tradition, non-biblical tradition, Jesus has a lot to say about this in Mark chapter 7, 1 through 13, but man-made tradition, Jewish tradition, said that if there wasn't a quorum of 10 adult Jewish males, you couldn't have a synagogue. So there's no synagogue here. And so if there was no synagogue, the tradition of the Jews was that you would go to an outside open air place and have corporate worship. That's what's going on. So there's no synagogue. And Paul goes outside looking for a place to worship on the Sabbath. Our brother's teaching on the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, um, it's, it's, you should come for Sunday school. I don't want to, to say a lot about that um, because he's already covered a ton. The only thing I want to say in relationship to this text is not only does the time indicator of when this woman was converted teach us about the historicity, that this is a real day, it also teaches us something else. As Protestants, Catholics use this, Protestants use this phrase. We use this phrase, uh, the means of grace. Have you ever heard that phrase? The means of grace. What are the means of grace? What are the means by which God presents to us Christ and feeds us on Christ? What are, the, what are the means of grace? The preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, and prayer primarily. And I know some corners say church discipline too. But preaching, Bible, sacrament, prayer. We're brought to a saving relationship to Jesus and we're built up on him. One of the means of grace, kind of in a big picture, is the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't particularly for the Jews. It's a creation ordinance. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. God separated the Sabbath day. He blessed the Sabbath day. And here's what I'm going to say. If you will permit me, I understand it's the Jewish Sabbath. I understand it's a Saturday. But if you'll let me use this phrase. When did Lydia come to know Jesus? If you let me use the modern, the church epoch. When she went to church. When she got out of bed on a Sunday and she said, I'm going to go to church. When she got out of bed, I know it was a Saturday. When she got out of bed on Sunday and she went to church, she found Christ. People think, because we have the flesh, no one's going to tell me to do what I don't want to do, and blah, 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 blah. I'm going to do what I want to do. <laughs> you're not going to do what you're going to do. Who is the singer? I don't know. He couldn't sing a lick. You're going to serve somebody. I don't know who the guy, whatever he was. You're going to serve somebody, right? You're going to serve somebody. You can tell me whatever you tell me. You're serving someone. You either serve the devil or you serve God in Christ. That's how it works. No one gets out of this deal without being a servant 
of someone. So you're not going to do what you're going to do. But when we say, I'm going to the beach, I'm going to play golf all day, I'm going to blow off church, you know what? You're not going to hear about Christ. I'm going to pick it on you. You're going to play golf, you'll swim at the beach, you'll get suntan, sunburn, but no Christ. And then you think, well, my life is kind of a shambles, my marriage is a shambles, my kids are a shambles, I'm a shambles, what's going on? God says every week, come to my son, come to my son, feed upon my son. She finds Christ in the administration of the word on the day that God has consecrated for his worship. I, I've been here January 22 years, and I know we have secondary tertiary doctrines that we believe, and some I hold more strongly than others. I cannot tell you how many guys or people have come to me. Show me, Pastor, in the fourth commandment where we're required to go to church and worship. It's always a challenge. And then when I was younger in the ministry, I would work 60 hours and write a paper and show them from the Bible, and now it's whatever. Here's a book, because I know that most people are going to do what they're going to do. They don't really want to ask me to see what the Bible teaches. They just want to do what they're going to do. Here is a place, I, if you are interested, and someone says, well, show me in the Bible where we're required to worship on the Sabbath. Right here. They separated themselves to worship. It is right here. Isn't it true, beloved, this is a side, no extra charge for this. Isn't it true that if we're even a Christian of any kind of stripe, and we don't want to do something the Bible says do, or we don't want to believe something the Bible says believe, you know, we're Christians. We go in the Bible, and then what do we do? We make it say what we want to say. Let's be aware of that. We all have that. It's a dangerous business. Will the Bible, when we receive it, hurt our flesh? Will it hurt us? Yeah. Yeah. Every time. I preach sermons all the time, and as I prepare to preach the sermon, ooh, oh, that hurts. Ouch, that hurts my favorite sin. But it's going to feed our spirit. So this woman finds Christ savingly on the, the Lord's day, on the Sabbath day, as it were. And so we are taught to, um, I, I would use the means of grace diligently. Jesus constantly did this. This is in the Gospels. He was constantly doing good to the bodies and the souls of people on the Sabbath. Beloved, if you don't know Christ, go to church every Sunday. Go to church every Sunday that a church that preaches Jesus every Sunday. And if you want to be built up in Jesus, go to a church every Sunday that talks about Jesus every Sunday. I'll see you next week. Okay. And then the next thing we see is not only does she come to know Jesus Christ savingly on this Sabbath, the Bible also records for her sex or gender. I use sex and gender as the same thing, but that's another discussion. Um, I think I'm right in the modern whatever is wrong, but of course that's the case. But the Bible tells us it's a woman who's converted. And you think, well, is that significant? It is because the Bible wrote it. A lot of it, we're moderns, and as modern people, we're super enlightened. All the, the women in my family are, are, are feminists. It's an interesting deal, not Christians. But we come here, and even as born-again, Bible-loving, Jesus-loving Christians, we miss the import of God saying, and this woman, Lydia, who happened to be a Gentile businesswoman, she believed in Christ. Um, beloved, we're all creatures of time and space. We have a historical context. If you were raised in, in America, modern America, you think a certain way, and you think this is just the way that it is. If you're raised in another country, you, you, you take on that cultural understanding. God is going to correct what I would say is some of the anti-unbiblical male bias 
of Christ's day that these guys had, which God is saying, watch this. I'm going to save a woman. Not only am I going to save a woman, I'm going to save a Gentile woman. Watch this. I'm going to save a businesswoman at that. Whammo. You remember when Jesus spoke to the uh, Samaritan woman? Same idea. John chapter 4. Jesus' apostles were stunned that he was talking to a woman. John 4, 27. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he was speaking with a woman. And then later in the book of Matthew, the ladies are bringing the babies to, to Jesus for him to bless. And what do they say? We need to get these women away from Jesus. We need to get these kiddos away from Jesus. He's got big stuff to do. He doesn't need to talk to women and bless little kids. He needs to talk to the really important people, which are men. Men. When people say, oh, the Bible is misogynistic. Oh, no, it isn't. The Bible is that which liberates humanity from misogynistic thinking. It's in Christ that the value of the female is recaptured, the value of the woman. What we're looking at here with the mentioning of the gospel going out to this woman who's converted, it's to show us, I'm going to say the fancy word is, the ontological equality of women. Ontological, it means essence, being. Women were created in the likeness and the image of, uh, of God. Uh, um, Genesis chapter 1, it's like 26 to 28. And the image of God in man is not corporal or physical. It's true righteousness, true knowledge of God. Women are, are, are co-image bearers with men, equal image bearers with men. And in Christ, she's being restored to that, and she's a, a joint inheritor. That's what's being taught. It's, so it's an ontological equality or a salvific equality. That's what we're being, It's not economical. I don't mean money, I mean function. Do I believe that God has certain functions for men and women that differ? Yes. But as far as the... the the presentation of the gospel and the reception of the gospel, even Stephen. Galatians 3. In Christ, there's no what? Male or female, black or white. Even Stephen were equally loved. And so, even though we're not stunned by this, this is a stunner. I'm going to read to you, I don't often do this, from a, an extra-biblical place. It's uh, written in, um, oh, what is it? The Mishnah. Mishnah is a rabbinic writing codified around about A.D. 200. The Talmud is a commentary on rabbinic law, but this is from the Mishnah. This shows us this unbiblical male bias against the people that Christ is busy saving. This is a prayer. Well, it's actually not a prayer, but it's, it's a prayer. So this comes from the Mishnah, which every, every adult male Jew, if they're whatever, they pray daily. Are you ready? I thank God that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And you know what this text t teaches? I save Gentiles. I save women. I save slaves. I save business people. I'm in the saving sinners business. And I'm just going to say this. Any prayer that begins like this, I thank you, Father. I'm not like the schnook over there. I tithe. I go to church. That's not a prayer. Prayers are, they sound something like this. 
God be merciful to me, this sinner. So the unbiblical, anti-biblical thought of Christ's day, they didn't have a high view of women. And Christ's guys are being sent out, and they're being corrected. Christ is in the saving women business. He's in the saving men business. He's restoring us to the image of, of God. That, that's what's going on. I've mentioned, so we have the day that she was converted. We have the gender or the sex of the person receiving Jesus. And then we're also told her economic condition, her, her material condition. She's a seller of purple fabrics, which means she's wealthy. So she's a rich woman. She's probably in Philippi because she has a few bucks and she's on business. Beloved, we, in our society, which is, um, I would say we're socialistic, at least partially socialistic, and perhaps going, I hope to God that we don't go communist because it's usually atheistic. But I, 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 I'll get myself off of that. Which is basically the redistribution of wealth, which is theft. Um, we have this whole thing of like, um, we, we pit the rich against the poor, the black against the white. There's all the, it's just, it's demonic. And we're told... Oh, God loves the poor, and he really hates those bad rich people. Rich people are bad. Poor people are good. And, and, and what comes, what's happening here? Christ saves a rich woman. Well, how does that work? Abraham was rich. David was rich. He saves rich people. He saves poor people. And then you say, what about Matthew 19, where Jesus says it's harder for a, a, a rich man to get into heaven than a, needle to go, a, 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 a camel to go through the eye of a needle? He was not saying that he's not going to save rich people. He's just saying money can't buy you, you heaven. People think this way. Do they not? If I have enough money, I'm going to be really, really happy. You think that? You ever been poor, poor, like dirt poor? Been there. Dirt poor. You're eating rice and pasta all the time. Even when we were at our most poor, I'll challenge myself, even at our most poor, in relationship to the better part of the planet, what are we considered before God? Rich. Rich. So you think, well, I'm poor as a church boss. Oh, no, you're not. Is there a toilet in your house? You have water that comes out of your sink? Do you have clothes on your back? Do you have more than a bowl of rice to eat? Everyone here, we are considered rich. And this point is, Jesus does the impossible. You see, rich people can't go to heaven. Not, not unless Jesus converts them. Poor people can't go to heaven. Not unless Jesus converts them. He saves on the Sabbath. She meets Christ on the Sabbath. He saves a woman and he saves a rich person, which we thank God that he is a, a, not a respecter of any uh, persons. And I've said all along, which is not stunning to us because most of us are Gentiles. She's a Gentile. Uses the term a worshiper of God. It's like the term God-fear. It's a technical term. She's a Gentile that's believed the God of the Jews. He saves a Gentile. I was the land of my birth in Massachusetts. It was um, 20, 25% Jews. And we belonged to the JCC, the Jewish Community Club. My, my father went there for business. He thought it would be good for money. And so we were the token goy, which means nation. We were the goyim, the Gentiles. God saves Jews. God saves Gentiles. It's for the whole. That's what's going on here. You have a Gentile woman that's, that's saved. The Jews of Christ's day, even the guys were like, when are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? Like, you, you don't get it. I'm not in the business of renovating a patch of dirt. I'm in the business of gathering all of the Israel of God. And that's what he does. And, and, and then God says, 
And God opened her heart to believe the things about Christ that Paul told, told um, Lydia. He records to us, not only is she a woman, a Gentile, a businesswoman, she's believing. I guess this is where the Calvinist-Arminian fight is. I used to fight about these things when I was younger, and I don't fight about them anymore. We remember, we say we receive Christ, we, we come to Christ, we believe in, it's all belief. We're justified by faith in Christ, we receive him by faith in, even the eating Christ and the drinking of Christ, the context of John 6, is belief. The Bible records for us how Lydia was saved by Jesus. She believed in him. I'm going to say this. You already know this. If you were raised in any kind of church, I was not raised a Bible-believing Protestant. I was raised whatever I was raised. But I've been in churches. I've been in Protestant churches. Saying you believe is way different than believing. You know what I mean? Everybody and their brother says they're a Christian. Yeah, Jesus. Interesting concept. She believes. She believes she's a sinner. She believe, believes that Christ is her only hope in life and death. She believes. Many years ago, I had a Baptist kid here. He played the piano. And supposedly, he believes different things about these things to me. And we had him over the house for lunch. He said, Pastor, I got a question for you. I should shoot. He says, you're a Calvinist, right? I said, yeah, guilty as charged. And he said, well, I don't understand. I'm not a Calvinist, but you always are telling people to come to Jesus, believe in Jesus, and you'll be saved. I said, guilty as charged. But how is that different than us? It's the same gospel. The fight is over the mechanics of it. And we were in my living room. I went over to the light switch. And I said, here's the difference between us, me and you. You think the light switch is on in everybody. For me, I think the Holy Spirit has to throw it on. He, he causes you to be born again. So that's a mechanical issue. That's God's business. But the proclamation of the gospel is the same. Believe. And if you believe, like believe, believe, God opened your eyes. And then she's baptized. And what we see with this, the Bible is harmonious. There's a unity to it. Under the old administration of the gospel in the Old Testament, only the males received the initiatory covenantal sign, circumcision, which has been replaced by, by baptism. Now in the new administration of the covenant, this is where the writer to the book of Hebrews says, it's a newer and better, even the female receives the sign. And then as I told a brother who's a Baptist here today, and I'll mention the household baptism, here's my five seconds on the, the household baptism. You say, well, it doesn't say infants. Let's not even talk about that. All you see with that is God now, like the old covenant, when the, when the householder believes, those under the householder's authority, they also receive the covenantal sign. But here's the, here's the key point. It's not the fight over infant baptism. I think that can be proved with Genesis 17, verse 7, and the theology of the family. What this shows us is that God means to use the families to prosper the gospel. I was a flaming Baptist forever. And what, what did I say to my little kids? Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Love Christ and you'll go to heaven. Everyone believes that. Every Christian, Episcopalian, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, I challenge you. If you're a Christian here this morning, 
Christian, Christian, who taught you Jesus? Your mother. I don't care what denomination you are in. God works through the family to prosper the gospel. And then this whole section, as we look at the conversion of this woman, ends really with an application of James. This is the church of my youth, Catholics. Catholics believe in good works and Protestants don't believe in good works. That's silly. That's silly. We have a whole section in our secondary standard, chapter 16, which is on good works. We know that Lydia is converted how? She says she believes, and then how does she show it? She produces good works. True faith always produces good works. And it produces love to God and then love for what other class of people? Believers. Believers. We learn so much from God's conversion of this woman for which we praise the Lord for his word. Because we're here. We're found in here. Amen? May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.